start off here by uh, giving you a little overview of a new study. We're looking at the Gospel of John. Lord, I need a miracle. A few years back, we did a study of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, and that's up on our website or on our yeah on our website at glenwoodconnection.org, and it's called the I Am God. But for the next seven weeks, we're going to study the seven signs or miracles in John's Gospel. And seven signs cover John 1 through 12. So if you want to do some reading, if you want to do some devotional reading, then you can begin to read John 1 through 12. Now, I handed out, there's charts back there. You can see the charts of the seven statements and the signs and how they relate. And you can see that are related to, to Jesus. But what I want to really highlight for you is just three words as way of introduction for this whole series. And we're going to be studying miracles. Uh, John calls them signs. But I thought it to understand just a little bit about miracles to this. So just by way of, of getting you orientated to the series, uh, in the New Testament, there's three words that are used for miracles. The first is and oddly enough, John never uses this word. It is used in the New Testament for miracles, power. And it refers to God's power moving into the lives of people in extraordinary ways. Because they don't always happen. They happen when God's extraordinary power moves in to our ordinary lives. And we're going to see, even though John doesn't use these words, these seven miracles are indeed powerful. They show God's power over people, over distance, disease, and demons, power over Satan and sin, power to heal, to cleanse, to forgive, and to save. So that's the first word, power. The second word is wonders. You've heard the phrase signs and wonders. This word's only used once in John's Gospel, and it's linked with signs, signs and wonders. And wonders refers to people's reaction to what God's power can do or accomplish. So, God's power does something extraordinary in a miracle, and people's reaction is shock and awe and amazement at what God can do. The third word for miracles is sign. And that's the word that, Paul, that John uses most. That's the word that he uses. And signs refers to, and this kind of can help you with what signs, the very name, refers to the greater significance the power and wonder point to. See, John purposely doesn't use power and wonder because he knows a miracle, it's evident, God's power. And the response of people is, is wonder. But he to get the significance behind the miracle. And sign is in the word, the English word significance. S signs point to the deeper significance of a miracle. Miracles are powerful and wonderful, but more signs of the greater significance behind them. And one way you can define a sign is it's a miracle with a message. Now, think about when you travel. How many of you ever traveled somewhere and you're taking a long trip, especially back when you used to drive on vacations, and you would finally get to the border of the state you were going to or to the place you were going to, and there'd be a sign out there, right? Welcome to whatever. And so, how many of you would get out and take a picture around? Have ever done that? Got out and took a picture around? Yeah, you get out and take a picture of the sign. Why? Because it's a big deal. Hey, this. Wow, this is special. This is what we're longing for. This is what we're looking for. Now, how many of you got a tent out and camped out at the sign? How many of you looked for a hotel near the sign just so you could be at the sign and keep looking at the sign, right? No, what do you do? As soon as you take the picture, and some of you don't even wait and take the picture, what do you do? You hop in the car, and what do you do? You go to what the sign's talking about. You go to what the sign is pointing to. And that's exactly what we're supposed to be doing in the Gospel of John. John says, these are signs. Yeah, get excited about the miracle, God's power. Be in awe of what God is doing, but don't you dare camp out on the miracle because they point to, a, they point to the power of God's character. There's power in God's character. He's powerful. The power of these miracles point to the character of a sovereign God.
God. They point to God's compassion. These miracles are not only powerful and pointing to God, but they're compassionate. They meet needs. We're going to see in these seven miracles seven universal needs that these miracles meet. And they are seven supernatural miracles to meet seven universal needs. And they reveal that God is compassionate in using His power. But the biggest thing they point to is to the person of God's Christ, the person of Christ, God's Son. And that's the significance of miracles and signs in the Gospel of John. In fact, turn to John 20. Turn to John 20. John puts the purpose of his, of his gospel at the end. And that's because it's a discovery process. And, and sometimes we forget that. We try to tell our lost friends that are here on this cross, their names are there, and we try to tell them everything up front. And we don't guide them through a discovery process. But here's what John 20, uh, verses 30 through 31, the deep abiding significance. The place you want to go to when you see a miracle is the person of Christ. Therefore, it says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. So these seven are not the only ones he did. In fact, you see on that chart, there's eight, nine different miracles. We just traditionally have always looked at these seven in chapters 1 through 12. But notice, he performed many which are not written in this book. But these have been written for two reasons. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the significance of the sign. Don't camp out at the miracle. Instead, hop in your car and drive to Jesus as soon as possible. And that believing you may have life in His name. So here's what we're going to see in this series. Seven universal needs met by seven supernatural miracles that are in fact signs pointing to one incredible person, the Lord Jesus Christ, for one life-changing purpose, that you and I may have eternal life, not just in the future, but enjoy abundant life right here and now. So, with that said, let's uh, take a look. We're going to look at this first miracle, and it's a wedding, and weddings can be dreams fulfilled, or it can be fails. So let's look at a few fails and see if that if you can relate to that. Jerry, if you can hit the light. Oh, shoot.
that. We could probably do a whole lesson on that, uh, beginning with don't pick anybody up. Uh, don't, don't dance when you can't dance. I don't know. That, that was just a lot of picking up, going, uh, picking people up happen at weddings. I don't know why, but they, it does not end well. It does not end well. Listen, weddings are full of expectation of dreams fulfilled, but often like that and apparently broken limbs. But sadly, true of weddings is also true of marriages and of life in general. Uh, that's the message of this first miracle. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 2 in verses 1 through chapter 2. This first miracle that Jesus ever performed was at a wedding that had a fail. And it was disappointing. And rather than bringing great joy, it brought great disappointment. So let's take a look at John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. This miracle is performed at a wedding in the small town of Cana in Galilee. It's about seven miles north of Nazareth, which is Jesus' hometown. And we can see that his family attended. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pot, pots set there for the Jewish custom of pur purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and didn't know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. People freely. Then he serves of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now that is, is, this is a great study. This is a great story. And here's what you want to get. We need a miracle. The disappointments of life rob us of our joy. And that's the first thing I want you to see. Life disappointments often rob us of our joy. Life's disappointments often rob us of our joy. Let's talk a little bit about the background in the story, because if you don't have the background, you don't get the miracle. Wedding, the wedding celebration, a little different from ours. They were often week-long celebrations. Can you imagine? You remember how hectic it was planning one, you know, a one-day event? Can you imagine planning and preparing for a week? And this meant there had to be a lot of preparation, a lot of food, and a lot of drink for a lot of people for a whole week. This explains why there were these six water pots for purification. Because as Jewish people, they're going to be eating and drinking for a week. And according to Jewish law, but more importantly, according to man-made traditions, they would have to their hands always before they eat. They would have to wash all these utensils that they're drinking from, the plates they're using. So you have these 20 to 30 gallon, gallon containers and the water's getting used because the party has been going on. And we could assume that it's probably later in the week because the wine runs out. Surely this guy's not such a poor planner that he ran out on day one. We're probably late, last down towards the end of the week and yet the party is still going on. Second thing you need to know is that the bridegroom was responsible for the cost of the celebration. He is the source and the provider of this party, which explains why the head waiter or the head steward who was managing the food, when he tastes this wine that had been turned, this water that had been turned into wine, which he didn't know that it was from Jesus, he runs to the bridegroom and says, man, did you really provide for us? Man, and usually you save the good stuff at the beginning, and then as people are kind of uh, a little tipsy there and a little satisfied with what the good stuff, then you give them the bad stuff, 
You have kept the best to last. Running out of wine, though, which was the disappointment at this wedding, could bring great shame and dishonor. We don't, you know, I mean, the reason wedding planning is so intense is because you have such high expectations. And then you don't want to let down anybody in the wedding party, particularly who? The bride and your guests, right? Nothing worse than having a reception. I mean, you want that, you know, you taste the food, you make sure the caterer and all this stuff. So, but in this culture, if you ran out of wine, shame on you. It would be the most embarrassing, dishonorable, horrible thing. In fact, bridegroom up to a lawsuit from the from the bride's family so you could get sued for this this is a really big deal Th uh, the fourth thing i want you to see about this wedding celebration is yes this was wine and it was not mere grape juice the bible teaches moderation regarding alcohol not total abstinence but it but to say about not getting drunk and staying away from strong drink oh while the Bible doesn't absolutely forbid it, it does absolutely forbid drunkenness, and this wasn't just grape juice. In fact, the same word here in verse 10, that they have drunk freely, is the same word used throughout the New Testament for drunkenness. But as it's used throughout the drunk, uh, New Testament for drunkenness, it says don't do it. Are you with me? So, the, the, this, is, this is definitely stuff that you could get intoxicated with, but... The point is not that this was a drunken party that Jesus and his disciples hang out, hung out with. In fact, it's sad today that you have wrongly justify a things because in their mind there's a bunch of drunk sinners there and Jesus provided them more wine. So obviously Jesus is not upset about hanging out at weddings with sinners. And that's not the point at all. That is not the point of what is going on here. In fact, wine was diluted 1 to 3 or 1 to 10 with water and by some estimates was less alcoholic than what American beer would be today. Such diluted wine in that culture and in the Bible itself, this is all throughout the Bible, represents joy and happiness, not drunkenness and an orgy, okay? It represents the joy of a good life in the presence of God and is pleasing to Him. And when you ran out of such wine at such a celebration, it just disappointing, it would be dishonoring. Now notice the invitation list we see in verses 1 and 2. According to verse 2, Jesus, or verse 1, Jesus' mother was at the wedding and perhaps her whole family was there as well because in verse 13, uh, Jesus' brothers, his uh, stepbrothers, his half-brothers, not stepbrothers, his half-brothers, uh, show up in the picture. But notice in verse 2 how Jesus and his disciples are really pointed out. Uh, by this time we know from John 1, the previous chapter, that he had chosen at least five of his disciples, Peter and Andrew, Nathaniel and Philip, and most likely John himself who wrote the gospel. They're pointed out as being invited to this ministry. Jesus' public ministry is about to begin on a very local way at a very simple event, that of a wedding. Perhaps the bride, or maybe even more importantly, the groom, was probably a relative or family member of Mary. Why would Mary be so concerned that wine had run out unless she was somehow related to or connected with uh, perhaps the groom? And we know that Nathaniel was from Cana in Galilee. And so what, what, I, what we see here is a very relational, uh, relatives, friends. It's a relational basis for attending. Now, I've already said the disappointment of no more wine means no more joy, okay? Disappointment and joy. So let me give you a couple lessons to learn just from the background in these first two verses. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus puts value on the ordinary joys of life. 
Jesus puts value on the ordinary joys of life by his presence at this wedding with his disciples. In other words, here's Jesus starting his public ministry, and he's not so full of himself and full of his role as Messiah that he can't show up to a wedding party. That's pretty a big deal. He chose an ordinary wedding, which was consistent with God's design for the old creation, one man, one woman for one lifetime, in a small town in Galilee to perform his first miracle and to reveal his glory as the Son of God in the new creation. It's really interesting. He took this old creation marriage ceremony and, did, and, and used it as an opportunity to show his new creation role as the ultimate bridegroom. But there's a warning in this as well. And the warning is this. Don't make an idol of simple joys in your life and in my life. Mary's concern was for Jesus to maintain the day-to-day joy. Keep this party going, son. Keep the wine flowing, son. Fix this disappointment and potentially dishonoring situation. But and a greater joy, not only for the bride and groom, but for everyone there, and indeed for all of us as well. Listen, Jesus' greatest priority in your life is not to avoid disappointments in your life. Jesus' greatest priority in your life is not to keep the wine flowing so that you're never disappointed and you're always happy, and we always have a happy Jesus face. When the, when the wine runs, when disappointment floods in, and robs us of our joy. God is graciously reminding us where true joy is found. True joy is not found in the gifts gives, but in the giver. Amen? It's not found in the ceremonies that we enjoy, but in the Christ who is present at that ceremony. One of the hardest things we do in premarital counseling is say, hey, we're not here to plan a wedding. That's going to get taken care of. We're here to help you plan a marriage that last a lifetime. And to do that, you've got to have Christ present in that marriage. Uh, true joy is not in the performance of a ritual, uh, but in a relationship with the person of Christ who can alone provide lasting joy in the midst of our daily disappointments. And the third thing I want you to see is really practical to us. Even the most joyous moments in life will eventually wear thin, get old, and disappoint us. Okay? Even, that's why, you know, even the best wedding you saw that fails. Listen, we can glory in a wedding, you know, Valentine's. We can glory in having human love. We can glory in having our kids. We can enjoy these things. We can enjoy our job, and we can work to enjoy our job. We can have a ministry and a giftedness here at our church and enjoy what we're doing. But at the, at the end of the day, all those things will wear thin, get old, and they will run out. Right? Family, marriage disappointment, family disappointment. The happiest of weddings can end in the most miserable of marriages. Kids can grow up and disappoint. They can rebel. They can run away. Financial disappointment. Jobs can be great, but then we don't get promoted. Or, we, worse, we get demoted. Or worse, we get let go. And pretty soon, hey, there's joy in this job. Or there's no more money. Physical disappointment. Health runs out. There's no more joy in living now because I can't do the things I used to do. Spiritual disappointment. Maybe all excited about Jesus and we get active in ministry and then we get burned out and we lose our joy of the Lord in worshiping and serving Him. The point is, can you relate to Mary this morning? Can you runs out, we say to Jesus, we have no more joy. In other words, I need a miracle when the disappointments of life have robbed me of my joy. But I've got good news for you from this passage. Jesus has for God's joy. Jesus is God's joy in life's disappointments. Isn't that good news? That's the message. That's the significance of the sign. Jesus is God's joy in life's disappointments. So I want to take you through this 
a miracle and let you see how Jesus supplies us with God's joy. It's a process. Don't miss the process. I think it's amazing how in a very one little phrase he says, and the water became wine. I mean, there, there's no flashing, there's no splashing. And, and, and in fact, uh, Bible students aren't even sure, did the water in the six jars become wine? Or after filling the jars to the brim, did he say, now go to the well and draw out living water, and that became wine? I didn't know. I learned that. We don't really know. Okay? But that's the point. That doesn't matter. What matters is the process that Jesus wants to take us through. So let's take a look at it. First of all, the first thing that you see in the way that Jesus supplies us joy is by being present. Amen? Jesus was present. He was present at this seemingly insignificant wedding in an out-of-way and out-of-the-way Cana of Galilee. At a family, most likely a relative, a friend, a gathering. Here's the good news in your disappointments this morning. Jesus cares about life's simple pleasures and life's simple disappointments. And we need to remember to invite Him into all of them. Okay, now this is big stuff right here. Because if you're like me, I can run through life and then it's Sunday. You know, and it's Jesus Day. And then tomorrow is my day to work through the rest of the week. Oh, in Jesus' name, believe me. And I pray over my food and I do all that, you know, do all the right things. But you know what? I haven't really invited Jesus in to my day. The simple joy of, you know, I, Rick, I always talk about Rick sending, he doesn't send them anymore. He says they don't do justice. He, sends, uh, he sees the, the sunrise when he drives his bus. So, Rick, I'm disappointed. I don't have that joy anymore. Send me some. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, I'm, 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 I'm waiting for the right time of day, Rick. And, uh, you know, when we see something like that, we need to invite Jesus into it. Amen. Because here's the thing, if you're not in the habit of inviting him into the simple pleasures of life, we won't be in the habit of inviting him in to the simple disappointments of life as well. All right? So that's the first lesson I want you to see. Jesus is there and he cares when life is disappointing. Never think of you or your life as unimportant to him. Jesus is big enough to do something about your disappointments, but he's close enough to care about you in them. Good stuff. Amen. Number two, Jesus refused to be manipulated into maintaining the simple joys of daily life. He cares about them. He can do something about them, but he refuses to be manipulated into maintaining them. And this is the significance in verses 3 and 4. This little interaction between Jesus and his mother is what usually is the big deal in this, right? Did you notice that? How does he address his mother? Woman! Okay. Okay, it's Valentine's. I wouldn't, ad I wouldn't advise men trying that out. Colby, don't do that. No, not even a little bit. Don't do it. You know, don't sign your card. Dear woman, you know, the dear woman, you know, which catches it, but that's not the idea. Uh, right, woman? <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. The problem is, in verse 2, in verse uh, 3, Mary had a controlling expectation of her son. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. You need to hear desperation and expectation in that. There's no more wine. Okay? Now, notice John highlights the relationship of mother and son. In fact, Mary is never named in John's gospel. Uh, she's always described as the mother of Jesus. Notice that she expects her son to take care of this potentially disappointing situation, but doesn't come out and ask or order him to do this. Now, this is classic mom. Is this not a classic mom? How many have a mom like this? She doesn't tell you what to do. She just states the need and expects you as the son or daughter. And some are just like, okay, we just have counseling session back there at that table. All right, listen. 
She's just being a typical mom. Mentioning it should be enough to cause her son to spring into action and take care of her needs. After all, if you're going to be the Messiah, son, why not take care of this wine situation for your mother? Right? That's what she's saying. That's what she's doing. Very human, okay? Very much like you and I. We kind of talk to God about that. God, I'm not really into this prayer thing. I'm just letting you know. Get down here and fix this because I'm disappointed and things aren't working right. Jesus gives a respectful rebuke of, her mo- of his mother, but not a refusal. The, t- the, the, the line and the edge here is amazing. She, he rebukes mom, yes, but not rudely, and without actually refusing her implied request. That's just like our God. Notice, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Let me break this down. First of all, woman. Why not mother? Because he's establishing a distance without disrespect. A woman here would sound more like being respectful, but he's distancing their relationship. You're coming to me as your, as your son, but I'm the son of God as well, and I'm on my father's business which takes priority over mom's disappointments and demands. This was not rude. It communicated to Mary that she was no longer that he was no longer relating to her as just her son. In other words, it's another old new transformation in this passage. He's saying my old relationship was okay when I was your boy mother, son. But that's being replaced now. I'm starting my public ministry and a new relationship. Heavenly Father. In other words, Mary didn't have an inside track with Jesus just because she was his mom. Point of application, if you have a Catholic background or you're you're somehow uh, still tied into that tradition, listen, Mary doesn't have an inside track with Jesus. She had to come to Him as Lord and Savior. No one else did. And so you can be as close to Jesus as Mary was, even without being His mom. Uh, It expresses compassion. There's still compassion in this address. And the reason we know that is the only other time that Jesus addresses Mary in the Gospel of John, is in chapter 19 when he's on the cross and John, the the writer of the Gospel, is standing there with Mary and he says, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And so he's saying this woman again to say, I'm up here dying on this cross as the Son of God, but I still care about you and I want someone to take care of you because I am your son but I have greater priorities. Which then brings us in this what with me. Uh, now that sounds a little abrupt. You know, the woman thing we can get over maybe, but this sounds pretty abrupt. Um, and he's basically saying, what does this do with me? This wine running out. Why come what has this to do with me is used five other times in the Gospels. And it's really interesting. It's always used when Jesus performs an exorcism and encounters demons, and demons say to him, what does this, they use the exact words, what does this have to do with you, Son of God? And basically what they're saying is, look, you're intruding into our domain. You don't belong here. And basically what Jesus is saying to Mary is the same thing. My realm of authority is not under your control. You don't come to me and make demands. You don't come to me to get every expectation fulfilled. You don't come to me to avoid every disappointment. And boy, I don't know about you, but that's a good reminder for me. Because sometimes we turn prayer into... Jesus being our genie. Pray enough and get what you want, right? Or like Jesus is a divine ATM machine. If I punch the right numbers, I'll get what I want. And, and, and Jesus is saying, look, this is not your place to be calling out my... Jesus could have said very gently, yes, mother, I know. I'll take care of it immediately. 
And that's what he did. He took care of it. But that's not what he said. Because he was saying, I'm the Son of God. And you need to come in recognition that I am God and you are not. And you have no claims upon me. I act freely. I don't perform miracles on demand. Very opposite of the health and wealth gospel. Right? Very opposite of faith healers that say, do this, usually send me money, and you'll get this miracle. And Jesus says, I don't operate that way. Okay? The bottom line is this. Or has not come. You see, the point is this. What is Jesus' hour? His hour is the hour of His death when He will die and cleanse us from our sins. Uh, you trace this phrase. This is the first of this phrase in the Gospel of John. And it finally comes in John 12. At the end of the signs, 1 through 12, at the end, Jesus finally says, My hour has come. And the rest of the Gospel is focused on His death, burial, and ultimate resurrection. You see, Jesus was saying to Mary, My number one concern here is not meeting your physical needs and providing earthly joy. My number one priority is to do my Father's will, which will cleanse you from your sins, give you a relationship with me that has far greater joy than the buzz from alcohol. Amen? Or from a human relationship. Or from your kids growing up and being perfect. Or from your job having all the perks that you want. In other words, there's something greater for you here. And I'm going to provide it. And let me show you how I'm going to do it. Here's what I want to remind you of, of the greatest disappointments about full healed until the life to come. See, we think no wine at my wedding is a big deal. We think loss of a promotion, big deal. We think loss of a relationship, big deal. Hurt. They hurt deeply. But the disappointments in life are yet to be seen in the next life to come. Let me give you three of them. Falling of God's glory as sinners. You think having no wine at a wedding's disappointing. Come and you face Jesus and all and your your sins have fallen short of the glory of God. Number two, never having a faith that follows Jesus in obedience. Never having a faith that follows Jesus in obedience. There's something worse than, than a difficult life in this life. And that is not following Jesus in your disappointments. And when you come and face face to face as a believer and you do not hear, well done, good and faithful servant, you will have the disappointment of your life. And third, failing to finish the work God has given us to do. Jesus ends in John 17 before he goes to the cross. Father, I finished the work that you have given me to do. And that is always a haunting phrase. May we on our deathbed be able to say to our loved ones and to our I have fit you have given me to do, right? I didn't flake out. I didn't, I didn't quit. So, how does Jesus supply us with God's joy? Let's look at number three. Jesus deals with our disappointments on His terms, not ours. On His terms, not ours. Now, this is the key. Look at verse 5. Look at how Mary responds. Now, everybody gets offended about how Jesus spoke to Mary, except for Mary. Mary doesn't get offended. Mary doesn't get, you know, doesn't say, well, who do you think you are, young man? I didn't raise you to be this way. I tried, Susan. I wasn't too good at that, but I tried. Here's what the mother says. Here's what his mother says to the servants. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, if you want to highlight something in this passage, you highlight that. Whatever he says to you, do it. In other words, Mary got the message without being offended. Because this was Mary's character. Remember when the angel told Mary, you're going to have a virgin conception, and she says, or you're going to conceive, and she says, how's that? I'm a virgin. And he explains to her, it's going to come through the Holy Spirit. Do you remember what she said to him? Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done according to your word. See, this was her character. But she lost it a little bit here. Do you ever lose it a little bit in relation to God? 
You know who he is. You know how you ought to be to him, but you kind of get demanding. Right? But he quickly... Re- and then look how the servants do. They do exactly what Jesus commands. So look at verses 6. Stone water pots, and Jesus says to the servants, fill the pots of water. So what do they do? Fill it. And then he says, draw some water out. What do they do? Draw some water out. Then he says, take it to the head waiter. So what do they do? Take it to the head waiter. Listen, if you want to find joy in your disappointments, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Even if it doesn't make sense. Even if it's simple and small and mundane. The hardest thing to do in your disappointments in life is to keep your daily routine for Jesus consistent. Right? Hard to do. Number four, Jesus fulfills the old covenant demands for us so we can experience the better joys of the new covenant blessings in Him. This is the significance of these six stone water pots. Where do they come in? Well, they're for purification. And remember, Jesus' hour is dying on the cross to cleanse us from our sins. So what he's saying is, look, see those, those old, that Old Testament covenant law? See that religious tradition over there to try to cleanse yourself? Go fill that to the brim. Why? Because I fulfill that law completely. See, the beauty of it is the law was fulfilled to the brim with him. I worked hard on that one. He says, fill it to the brim because that's done. The old is done and the new is here. Now, draw out of that old, draw out that water, and I'm going to turn it into the wine of the new covenant. And that wine's going to not only represent joy, but it represents the blood of the new covenant that I'm going to shed when my hour comes. Isn't that beautiful? And the beauty of it is, number five, Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom who supplies God's joy in our disappointments and transforms them into something much better for His glory, our good, and our uh, others' good, and our joy. I think this is beautiful. I don't know whether you just drew it out of the well. I tend to go with the six pots turning into to, to wine. That was like 120 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. That's a lot of joy. That's a lot of joy in Jesus. And the good thing about all that wine is it brought glory to Jesus as the true bridegroom because He provided it. It was for others good. They had the best wine they had ever had. They had kingdom wine. The wine like we're going to have in the kingdom. I know that just freaked out some of you, but that's what it's going to be like. Okay, But it was for our joy. In Jesus. You see, in verses 9 through 10, it shows that the groom was finally responsible for, was, was ultimately responsible for the wine at his wedding, which means it was his shortcoming that let the wedding, the wine run out. You see, Jesus, in compassion, spared this dude significant shame and dishonor and perhaps a lawsuit, for which we can all say, Thank you, Jesus. He didn't provide point. None of us can. There's nothing you can do to provide the joy that you want in your life, and there's nothing you can do to provide it for those you love. See, we all want to be happy, and we want to make other people happy. But the reality is we run out of wine. We fall short of the glory of God. We can't provide what only God can provide. And Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom. You know what's interesting about the bridegroom? You never get a response from the earthly one because he's not the point. The point is the heavenly one. I'm your source of joy. I'm your provider in disappointments. The first, the last thing that John the Baptist says about Jesus in this gospel is this. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. That's in chapter 3. Jesus is the bridegroom. And the first miracle he does 
is to show that He is the one who can provide you joy. So what's, what's the point? Number three, our joy will overflow in spite of disappointments when we taste and see the glory of Jesus. Our joy will overflow in spite of disappointments when we taste and see the glory of Jesus. I mean, this is a beautiful thing. He says, hey, take this wine that I've just turned, this water that I've just turned into wine and take it to the head waiter. And the head waiter tastes this. He tastes it and he sees the goodness of the wine. And he runs to the bridegroom and says, you're awesome, man. You're awesome. And that's what we should be saying about Jesus. We should taste of him and his goodness. And we ought to run to him every day and say, even in my disappointments, you're awesome. You're good because you save the best to last. Listen, the reason this life is disappointing because it's still under the old covenant curse. And one day Jesus is going to come back and bring in the new creation. And He's going to bring in His kingdom. And we're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're going to say, wow, you saved the best to last. And I can make it through those disappointments knowing that the best is yet to come. Amen? And so here's what true disciples do with this passage. Look at verse 11. True disciples understand the purpose of the sign. It's Jesus' glory, not the miracle. Listen, when you run out of wine and joy in this life, focus on the glory of Jesus as your Savior. Amen? You focus on that. You drink deeply of Him. You taste and see that He is good. And then you trust in the person which is the significance of the sign. I love this from Adrian Rogers. I almost named the series after it because it's the point of the whole series. Believe in miracles. They believe that only the disciples understood the miracle. Don't trust in miracles. Trust in Jesus. Believe in miracles and trust in Jesus. So as I broke this down, I've given you, and you can read through them, this is a process. Listen, when life's disappointment, I am not telling you and Jesus isn't telling you, first of all, to go get drunk. Okay, let's make that clear. Number two, he's not saying put on a happy face and say, the best is yet to come. No, it hurts. Life hurts. It hurts deeply. We grieve. We, it, but in that grieving, here's a process that he wants to take you through. So I got seven things there, and it's basically a review of what we just went through, but it turns it into application for you. So if you're disappointed this morning because something has run out and life has disappointed you, here's seven things to go before the Lord with. Amen? And here's what you do sure that Jesus is really present in your life. Sometimes the reason we can't make it through disappointments is because we haven't invited Jesus either into our life as our Savior or more importantly, into our disappointment. Sometimes we just gripe and complain in prayer instead of just saying, Jesus, I need you to enter into my disappointment. Amen? Number two, sure you invite Jesus all your life times or the difficult times. See, you're not going to be apt to go to him in the disappointing times if you're not going to him on a daily basis. Amen? Number three, make sure you bring your disappointments to Jesus without being demanding or controlling. Remember what Mary finally learned. Whatever he says, just do it. Or Jesus put it this way, not my will be done, but your will be done. But Jesus and ask three times for what he wanted. It's okay to do that. Number four, make sure you're willing to release your expectations to him and submit yourself to doing whatever he commands. That's the most important thing. When he says draw water, you draw water. When he says fill it, you fill it to the brim. Number five, make sure your joy is in his glory and not your own. Jesus is full of grace and truth. He what you need, and that's what we need. We need grace and truth not constant happiness. Number six, make sure you remember Jesus always saves the best joys for last in His coming kingdom and the new creation. Listen, when you suffer loss in this life, live in such a way that you'll never lose joy in the, day, in the, in the age to come. And then finally, 
you are enjoying the blessings He's already provided through the new covenant. We can have joy in spite of disappointment in the Holy Spirit. Amen? And this is one of the things I really like. Jesus said at the, we're going to celebrate uh, the Jewish Passover and the, and the Lord's Supper here coming up in March. Here's what Jesus said at the Lord's Supper. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That, wouldn't it be cool to be there that day and taste that? What Jesus, well, someday we're going to taste it and there'll be no alcoholism. There'll be no drunkenness. There'll just be joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come and we're amazed. We see the power that you have over our disappointments. We're in awe of what you can do. But most importantly, Lord, we want your glory, your grace, and your truth. Father, we all have disappointments. And the longer we live in this sin-cursed world, the greater our disappointments can become. But the good news is, greater our joy can come become when we do whatever you say. And we see and taste and know that you are good all the time. And all the time you are good, full of grace and truth. May we meditate on this. May we take these seven processes and move them into our disappointment and allow you, invite you to be present in our lives, in the good times and the bad times. And we'll give you the glory because you're the bridegroom. We are the bride. And we can't wait for the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hey, let's worship in joy.